This is an AMI podcast. The Halifax School for the Blind sought to help every child with vision loss learn the skills necessary to lead an independent and prosperous life. Former students share stories from their time at Canada's first school for the blind. When you're talking to other children who are equally disabled, you tend to inquire about, so what's wrong with your eyes? So I knew a lot about conditions of blindness by the time I graduated at school. Tales from the Halifax School for the Blind. New episodes every first Tuesday of the month. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Joitha Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Most of us have heard the advice, get at least eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. However, a large number of people struggle with sleep. We toss, we turn, and try and get comfortable. When we do manage to fall asleep, we don't sleep deeply, waking up at the slightest disturbance. We wake up tired. We go through our day bolstered by cups of coffee, but otherwise feeling groggy and half asleep. Sleep is so fundamental to good health that the inability to sleep enough or to sleep deeply can and does throw off our entire day. The reasons for sleep deprivation are many and varied. The cures seem to elude us. Today, we discuss blindness and sleep. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. And welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Juwita Gupta, and I'm the host of the program. It's really good to be with you today. I hope that everyone is staying safe and staying well as those COVID numbers climb across the country. I know it's a tough time for many of us, so I do hope that you're looking out for your health and for those that you care about. It's a story that I've wanted to do on the program for quite some time. I struggle with sleep myself. A lot of the people that I know struggle with sleep. And I often hear complaints about trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, and feeling groggy and tired and fatigued all day long. It's such a pervasive concern. And yet, it seems like no one really seems to have a solution. One facet of this, at least a rumor that I've heard quite consistently, is that there is a relationship between being visually impaired or blind and having difficulty sleeping. I'm curious about whether there's something to the rumor, and I thought I would catch up with an expert and find out. Dr. Stephen Lockley is an associate professor of medicine at Harvard University and a neuroscientist in the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He joins us from Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Lockley, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you on the program. Hi, Joita. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's start with a few basic questions, uh, even before we get into talking about blindness and sleep. A lot of us have heard the term, the body clock or circadian rhythm, but we may not understand exactly what it is and why it's important. So can you tell us a little bit more about our body clock? Yes. So our circadian body clock means rhythms that have a period of 24 hours that last 24 hours long. And so it comes from the Latin circa and dies, about 24. And we, in fact, have a clock in the brain which keeps time all on its own. And many species have this. Um, uh, Certainly uh, mammals have a very well-evolved clock that keeps time without any external information and carries on ticking to control all of the things that 
are governed by the circadian clock. And so if you think of some of the things uh, that have a 24-hour rhythm, you immediately mm -hmm. think of the sleep-wake cycle. You sleep about once a day every 24 hours. Um, your internal uh, temperature has a 24-hour rhythm. Many of your hormones do, but also your mood cycle, your performance, your sleepiness, your metabolism. Uh, many of these things are controlled by this internal clock. And so mm -hmm. we have a clock in the brain that keeps time all on its own and helps keep all of our rhythms in sync with the 24-hour day. Might be, a, again, a silly question to ask, but what happens if the clock stops being in sync or if it seems to take longer than 24 hours to complete a full circuit? So all of us have a slightly different clock length. And so someone might have a clock that is at, say, 23 and a half hours, whereas some people might have a clock which is as long as 25. Uh, on average, we find it's around 24 and a half hours in the visually impaired people we've studied. And so oh. what happens is that clock needs to be reset every day. And the most powerful time cue for resetting that clock is the light-dark cycle. So our daily 24-hour uh, light-dark cycle is that strong environmental time cue that then resets the clock each and every day. Uh, and so if we, for example, didn't have access to, to that light, if we lived in a cave without light, um, we wouldn't be able to reset our clocks. And unfortunately, uh, most people who have no light perception are unable to synchronize their clocks to 24 hours because the light can't get from the eyes to the brain. Dr. Lockley, I'm very curious about your research into circadian disorders, especially for people who are blind or partially sighted. How did you determine who to speak to for your research? Because it's a well-established fact that not everyone who's legally blind is fully blind. So the amount of vision that someone has or the amount of light perception that someone has would vary even based on the kind of eye disorder they might have. That's right. And so when we first started this research, uh, I was at the University of Surrey back in England, and we studied people with all types of different levels of visual impairment. And so we studied people who still had a lot of usable vision. Uh, then we studied people who had the ability to count fingers, people who could only see hand movements, people who could only distinguish light from dark, and then a group of people who had no light perception and had uh, no ability to tell light from dark. And so our first studies uh, looked at the relationship between that degree of, of sight loss and their sleep and circadian rhythms. And we found that those who have the most severe and, and most common sleep disorders um, or sleep problems uh, were those who had no light perception. It was true that people with visual impairment but some degree of light perception still had sleep disruption but the biggest uh, group or the group with the most serious problems were those with no light perception. Mm -hmm. And then we followed that up by looking at hormone levels. We measure the hormone melatonin, and we do this by collecting urine samples from people, and, and we do that for about two days a week uh, for, for a month, and, and people were very kind in providing these samples to us. And we can measure from that the melatonin rhythm or the cortisol rhythm in, in urine and look at the timing of that rhythm. And that was the way we told whether someone was on a 24-hour day because the rhythms had a period of 24 hours or whether someone was different from 24 hours and they were not entrained or synchronized to the 24-hour day. And so that's a very accurate way of telling whether someone's internal clock is synchronized or not. And we found that over half of totally blind people had a non-24-hour rhythm. They were not synchronized 
whereas nearly everyone with some light perception, even if it was only a small amount of light perception, most of those people were able to remain synchronized to 24 hours. I was about to ask you about how you did your research. So the urine samples is a really accurate way, it sounds like, to tell about the presence of melatonin or the lack of melatonin. But what about other measures? I'm wondering about self-reported data about the quality of sleep that people get. Or, you know, I know it's common to have people uh, go to a sleep lab. So were some of those measures introduced as well in any of your studies or are they complementary to the work that you're doing? Yes, at the same time as we did the urine samples, we also asked people to keep sleep diaries and to wear wrist activity monitors, a little bit like um, uh, ones people use today to track their, their steps. And we were able to show that your sleep pattern changes in and out of phase with this internal circadian clock. And so what some people will recognize if they have no light perception is a cycle. They may notice that they go through episodes of good sleep, then bad sleep, then good sleep, then bad sleep over several weeks or even months. But not everybody notices that. Some people uh, sleep okay and have no issues, even though their clock uh, has a non 24 hour rhythm. And some people are very severely affected and, and have a very clear non 24 hour rhythm. And so you really need to me measure the urine samples to assess whether the clock is, is synchronized or not, but then often the sleep will follow that. But let me give you an example of what someone might experience. If someone has a clock which is 24.5 hours, so 24 and a half hours long, then the brain will try and send that person to sleep half an hour later every day. So today they mm -hmm. might feel tired and want to go to bed at 10 p.m., 10.30 tomorrow, 11 p.m., 11.30, midnight, and so on. But after 24 days, the brain would be trying to make that person go to sleep at 10 a.m., 10.30 a.m., 11 a.m., and so on. And so people often experience this cyclic sleep disorder where they'll have several weeks of good sleep, several weeks of bad sleep, several weeks of good sleep, and so on, as they go, if you like, round the clock in and out of sync with the 24-hour day that people are still trying to live on. And so uh, this is called officially non-24-hour sleep-wake rhythm disorder, which is a long name. Uh, some people might have heard of it as non-24, but this is an inability of the clock, the internal clock, to synchronize with the light-dark cycle. And, and many people will have these cyclic sleep problems uh, with good and bad and good and bad sleep and so on. That sounds like my sleep pattern. My clock must be really out of whack. Um, how prevalent is non-24? I mean, we've talked about some people, but how many people, uh, do you have any idea about how many people suffer from this in the United States, maybe in Canada, maybe in England, where you started your research? Yeah, so we think that somewhere between 50 and 70% of totally blind people will have this disorder. And that's based on studies in different countries and, and different uh, parts of the world. And in the U.S., we estimate there's probably around 100,000 individuals uh, who may have this disorder uh, based on, on the census data of, of the number of people who are totally blind, meaning they have no light perception. And so that's the, the estimate, we think, maybe somewhere in the 100,000 uh, region. When we go to people who are visually impaired but have some degree of light perception, then we only think the, the prevalence is maybe as low as 10 percent or maybe even lower. But obviously, that would be many more people uh, because there are uh, you know, many millions of people who have uh, some degree of visual impairment. And so it's, it's really most common in totally blind people. And in fact, if uh, a totally blind person has a sleep disorder, the chances are that it is this. 
um, and that should be mm-hmm. checked out first before really looking at any other sleep disorders because it's very likely to, to be the reason. When we get to people who are visually impaired, then just like all of us, you know, there are 90 different sleep disorders that could affect you. Um, things like insomnia and sleep apnea, uh, restless leg syndrome. There's lots of different types of sleep disorders uh, that someone should get checked out. But if you have no light perception, it's highly likely that you have this circadian non-24 hour disorder. The other group of people that seems to have a very hard time keeping their circadian clock in sync is anyone who does shift work. Um, you know, hospital residents, they work really long hours, uh, people who work night shifts. Is there um, anything we've learned from the experiences of these groups of people that might inform, and as we get into talking about some of the treatments for non-24, uh, is there anything that we've learned from the experiences of these other groups of people that might inform uh, our understanding of the circadian rhythm? Yes, very much so. So um, there are other circadian disorders, and so you've mentioned the common one, which is shift work disorder. Uh, Another similar disorder is jet lag uh, disorder, which is a similar problem. But this is slightly different from the the problems uh, in blind people. So in blind people, the problem is not having any light reach the clock in the brain, and so the clock reverts to its own internal time. Whereas for shift work and jet lag, we get light exposure, but we get it at the wrong time. And so the clock is able to synchronize, but if you give light at the wrong time, it can't synchronize properly. And so when we, for example, go from a day shift to a night shift, that might change the the, the sleep behavior by 12 hours. So the clock needs to shift by 12 hours in order to become resynchronized with that new light-dark cycle. And it takes on average about an hour a day um, if you don't do anything special. So if you go from a day to a night shift, It would take you nearly two weeks to adapt to that night shift, but often many people don't stay on the night shift for that long, and so they go back and forth and have problems with sleep and performance as a result. And so the uh, change in light-dark cycle allows us to learn what happens when we alter the light in something like shift work, whereas in in the blind, we're really studying the impact of having no light in the system uh, when trying to live on a 24-hour day, which is where that Uh, the misalignment that desynchrony comes from because the internal clock is running on a a day usually longer than 24 but people still try and live on their own 24-hour social day and that creates the conflict there. My name is Joita Gupta and my guest today is Harvard University professor Stephen Lockley. We're talking all things sleep. Dr. Lockley, one of the things I read when I was taking university psychology is that you have stages of sleep. And what flows from that idea is that it's not just how much sleep you get, but what kind of sleep you get. You have to get that deep REM sleep uh, where you get the rapid eye movements and that's when you really end up being rested. Does non-24 affect not only when we sleep, but also the quality of the sleep we get? It can. And so you're absolutely right. We have we have different stages of sleep, which represent different depths of sleep. And those different stages have different functions. And so we're learning, for example, that the REM sleep, that deep sleep you mentioned, is very important for learning and memory. And so if we, uh, if we learn something in the day, then having good REM sleep at night will help us keep that memory and help us learn. Um, and, and make sure that we remember what we, we had in the day. Whereas the, the non-REM sleep, which is uh, it can also be deep sleep, that is very helpful in making us feel recovered from sleep and making us feel alert when we wake up and giving us the energy for the day. And so you need both types. You need both REM and non-REM sleep 
in order to get the full benefits of sleep. And if we think about non-24, we, we don't usually diagnose it with uh, an assessment of sleep stage, which you would do in a sleep lab. You would put electrodes on the head and, and measure sleep stages. Uh, we don't usually do that to diagnose it because it's really the cycle of the sleep or, or those urine samples I mentioned earlier, which help us diagnose it. But we have done some studies in the lab where we measured people with non-24, and we find that the, the non-REM sleep is usually well restored. It, it's okay because that really depends on how long you've been awake and not your circadian clock. But we know that REM sleep is much more under the control of the circadian system. And so if you're not able to get sleep at the right time uh, in your internal clock, then you may have problems with not getting enough REM, and this may in turn um, you know, cause problems with memory and concentration. And so nobody's proved that link yet in, in blind people, but you would hypothesize that um, you would probably have more trouble with REM sleep and that would cause issues maybe with, with memory loss. Well, uh, the, the other culprit for poor sleep in people who are not blind is, uh, you know, looking at our phones right before bed. That's something that they tell us not to do. And yet I know for a lot of blind people, having access to that phone or that iPad is such a lifeline. Do you find at all that looking at social media before bed or looking at your phone before bed, having looking at that blue light, does that influence sleep cycles at all in people who are blind or partially sighted? Or is that a moot point? No, it, it's an issue for anyone who has light perception of, of, of any degree. And so whether you have uh, normal vision or, or have visual impairment but can see light, then that light from your electronic devices is having a potentially negative effect before bed. And so the reason for, for this is that the, the way that the light is detected is using a different system than we used to see. And so this sounds a bit complicated, but about 20 years ago, a new set of photoreceptors or, or light-dependent chemicals were discovered in the eye. And these are most sensitive to blue light. And the, the actual pigment name for people who are interested is something called melanopsin. And this is in a different part of the retina than the rods and cones we used to see. And so we've actually mm -hmm. studied some people who are totally visually blind. They have no rods or cones. But their melanopsin, their blue light sensitive cells, are still intact. And they can still mm. detect light uh, and, and synchronize their rhythms in the brain, even though they can't see the light. Now, mm -hmm. the, the numbers of people who have that are very small, but uh, it, it illustrates that um, the, the effect on sleep and circadian rhythms is different to the effect on vision. And so even if you can't see very well but can still detect light, you don't want to be using electronic devices in the evening because that will alert the brain, make it longer, uh, make, it, make it harder to fall asleep, will change how much deep sleep you have, uh, including REM sleep in a study some colleagues did here in the lab and so mm -hmm. anybody with, uh, with, with with any degree of light perception you want to see as much light as possible in the daytime but then in the evening before sleep be exposed to very dim light try not to use electronic devices and if they have them uh, put them onto night mode which will dim and, and make the screen look a little red orange mm -hmm. My coworker has a, one of those mechanical alarm clocks because they just don't want their phone in the room with them and they get excellent sleep. Maybe I should take a page out of their book. Uh, you know, one of the things I noticed just anecdotally is when I was younger, maybe in my teens, I still stayed up to all hours of the night. I would often listen to the radio with my headphones in. 
and I was, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed in the morning. And the, the older I get, and mind you, I'm visually impaired. So the older I get, I find the more disruptive my sleep pattern is, the more it affects me during the day. Is age a factor? We haven't really talked about it, but I'm curious about whether non-24 becomes more of an issue for people as they get older. We haven't studied that specifically. We, we've studied people of many ages. We've studied people, you know, from 18 all the way into their 80s, but we've never done a formal analysis of, of age. Um, it, it probably won't have an enormous impact because the main cause of the problem is that, that lack of synchronization of the clock. And that will be just the same as 18 as 80. But the, the other thing that can influence our sleep is, is something called the homeostat, which is uh, essentially counting how long you've been awake and making you sleepy the longer you've been awake and then counting how long you've been asleep and making you alert when you wake up. And that does change as we age. And so that's why as we get older, generally, people tend to have more sleep disruption because they're unable to stay asleep as long or get as much deep sleep as they used to when they were younger. The other thing you describe mm -hmm. is is uh, the eveningness or, or being more like an owl that young people experience. So when we're young and going through our teenage and, and young adulthood years, our clocks tend to be set later. So we go to bed later mm -hmm. and sleep later as young people. But then as we get older, we start to sleep earlier and earlier. And so if you're someone who doesn't have non-24, you probably now sleep earlier than you did 10 years ago because that happens through our lifespan. We tend to become more morning type as we get older. That's interesting. It's good to know what to expect down the road. Uh, what about your research into non-24? I mean, it's obviously of great benefit to those of us who are blind, but does the research also have benefits for people who are not blind? What's the broader application? Yes, it does. And so uh, it's an unusual situation for people to live in the real world without light getting to the brain. Um, and so if we ever wanted to try and uh, imitate that experimentally, it'd be very hard to do that. You'd need to bring someone into a lab for many months um, and have them live in complete darkness, which for sighted individuals um, would be a major challenge to, to try and run such a study. And so what our work uh, with totally blind people has, has done has helped us really understand the importance of light in synchronizing circadian rhythms. And uh, those of us with light perception uh, take it for granted, of course, that we have that light information getting to the brain. And most people think about that usually just in the ability to see. But what we now know is that that light is also doing another second important role, which is synchronizing the clock to the 24-hour day through these new photoceptors, through these blue light photoceptors. And, and if you are lucky enough to have light perception and just live in the 24-hour world, the system does it for you. You know, you don't wake up in the morning and say, right, it's 7 a.m., I've got to get my light pulse in order to synchronize my clock. If you live in the natural world and can perceive light, then the system does it for you and keeps you in sync. But when you lose that ability, then obviously it becomes uh, potentially very problematic and, and shows how much we take for granted what light does to us. Uh, you know, there's always a, a bit of a tussle in the sciences, this debate between the environment and biology. I'm sure you're familiar. I'm wondering if you've had a way to sort of isolate the role of stress in sleep disorders for people who are blind, especially. I mean, even leaving one's house and going to the store and coming back can be rife with stress. And we know stress is a major contributor to sleep disorders. Is there a way for you to separate, separate out the effects of, let's say, chronic stress from uh, non-24? 
to some extent. And so, of course, uh, stress is uh, a risk factor for sleep and is one of the major causes of insomnia, um, a clinical diagnosis of insomnia. But that would be happening, if you like, on top of the, the non-24. And so maybe the best uh, explanation for that is when we did that initial survey of sleep problems with visual impairment, um, the, the prevalence of sleep disruption was about 50% of the population in people who had some light perception, even though they were visually impaired. Whereas when we measured it in people with no light perception, it was 80%. In sighted controls that we studied, it was only 16%. And so clearly there is a, a big influence of things other than non-24 hour on sleep of visually impaired people. And I suspect that stress is a, is a potential um, uh, component of that. Um, uh, depression may be a component, as well as things that everyone uh, would be at risk of, things like sleep apnea, uh, if you're very overweight or have a big neck or an unusual jaw shape, uh, or insomnia just from daily living and so on and so forth. So there is certainly an increased risk of sleep disorders in visually impaired people, but nobody's really pulled apart the contribution of things like stress versus uh, shift work versus sleep apnea and other disorders. I think I have time for just one last question, which is the million-dollar question. How do we treat non-24? Does thing, Do things like melatonin supplements help? Does exercise help? What's the cure? So there is one approved medication um, for non-24, mm -hmm. which is a drug called Hetlios or, or Tazimeltion is its official name, but Hetlios is, is the drug. And that's been uh, approved by the FDA and released by a company called Vanda Pharmaceuticals. And I was involved in the trials that collected the data to approve that drug. Now, Hetlios is a melatonin agonist, which means it acts like melatonin. And um, if you take it at the same clock time every day, we showed in our clinical trials that it could help synchronize the clock and help with sleep uh, at night and, and reduce the number of naps in the daytime. And so uh, the recommendation is to take it at the same clock time every 24 hours so that it provides a time cue to the brain to replace the time cue that's been lost with the lack of light. Now, those studies were, were done uh, on the basis of work we and others had done with melatonin. Uh, and, and so we've shown that melatonin itself also works if you take it at the same clock time every day. The problem is melatonin is not regulated in the US. And when you go to a, a food store um, and buy a supplement of melatonin, you don't really know what's in it. And so mm -hmm. if we knew it was pure melatonin, then uh, that, you know, that would be useful and, and you could take that in the same way. But most of what you buy uh, over the counter or uh, from a, a health food store is, is not pure. It has other things with it. And so mm -hmm. if you can find a pure source of melatonin, then uh, you, you would take melatonin at the same clock time every day. But uh, you should be able to get a prescription for, for Hetlios, which is a melatonin-like drug doing the same type of thing. Um, and, and you take that then at the same time every day to reset. Well, speaking of the clock, we are right up against the clock here on the program. Dr. Lockley, thank you very much. It was so much fun getting to talk to you and getting to know about your research. Thank you. 
That was Dr. Stephen Lockley from Harvard University and a neuroscientist at the Brigham Women's Hospital. He joined us from Boston. If you'd like to hear my conversation with Dr. Lockley, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. Also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Dr. Stephen Lockley for being my guest on the program. Our technical producer is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio and Paula Janine is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for lending us your ear and we'll be back with more Pulse very soon. Stay safe, everyone, and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.